Warning, the following podcast has some foul language. You may wish to earmuff the impressionable. It's Friday, September 30th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. By now, you've probably seen or heard the clip of Biden looking around the room for Jackie. I want to thank all of you here for including bipartisan elected officials like Representative Governor, Senator Braun, Senator Booker, Representative Jackie, are you here? Where's Jackie? I didn't think she was was going to be here. Jackie wasn't there. I think you might know why by now, but if not, I'll explain in a couple of seconds. The Jackie was Representative Jackie Walorski, and the White House press secretary, Karen Jean-Pierre, was asked, why was Biden looking for Jackie? So the president was, uh, as you all know, you guys were watching uh, today's event, a very important event on uh, food insecurity. The president was naming uh, the congressional champions on this issue and was acknowledging her incredible work. He had uh, he had already uh, planned to welcome the congresswoman's family uh, to the White House on Friday. There will be a, a bill signing in her honor this coming Friday. Uh, so, of course, she was on his mind. So at this point... I will tell you what you may have known already, Jackie Walorski is dead. She died in a car accident. It did get quite a lot of coverage. This happened a few months ago. Biden searching for the dead woman is what's called a gaffe, a stumble, some egg on the presidential face. Except when asked, pretty obvious question at the press conference, why was he asking for the dead lady? Karen Jean-Pierre answered, well, why wouldn't he ask for Jackie Walorski? She's just a very important person in terms of passing this landmark legislation. Of course, you're going to be thinking about Jackie Walorski. And apparently, Karen Jean-Pierre had a phrase that she thought would answer all these questions. That phrase was uh, right on the top of her mind. I just explained she was on top of mind. Uh, um, You know, this wasn't what we were able to witness today and what the president was able to lift up. Uh, in this, uh, at this conference, at this event, uh, was how her uh, her focus on um, wanting to uh, uh, deal with, combat food insecurity in America. And this is something that he was lifting up and honoring. And again, he knows that he's going to see her family this coming Friday. There is a bill signing uh, that's going to happen in renaming a VA clinic in, in Indiana after the late Congresswoman. He knows that he is going to see her family and she was a top of mind. So there is no scandal here. There is a gaffe. And that's what I just like to mention. There was a time when presidential gaffes were kind of a bonding experience for almost all Americans. The president would do something kind of goofy. Gerald Ford would bonk his head. Not really, but we thought he did. He stumbled a little bit. Ronald Reagan would forget something pretty important or be rumored to nap in a meeting. And Johnny Carson, usually just Johnny Carson, because he was all we had, would go on TV and he'd joke about it and we'd laugh. And America as a country, as a polity, was drawn a little bit closer. And then what happened is there was this guy, perhaps you heard of him, his name is Donald Trump, and he threw the idea of gaffes out the window, flushed them down the not actually gold toilet, and it seemed like there could never be a time when a president could make a gaffe again, a gaffe that we would all say, yeah, that was pretty stupid, and then go on with our day. Because Trump just blew past gaffes and he went right to scandal slash hate crime, or at least insensitive voicing of endorsement of hate crime. And then comes Biden and Biden 
is actually making a lot of gaffes. So I was looking forward to a time when we all would laugh and say, gosh, that's a gaff." And then Jimmy Kimmel or Stephen Colbert or one of those guys, Trevor Noah, who's leaving, not because of lack of gaffes, I got to assume, they'd make a joke and we'd laugh. That just hasn't happened. The Biden accusers will get very defensive about any time Biden is criticized for what is obviously a mental lapse. And the Biden attackers will see it not as just an obvious mental lapse, but a sign of doom, impending doom. So I say, let's get back to the gaffes and have a few more laughs. Jackie would have wanted it that way. On the show today, it is an Antoine Tig. I shall answer all of the feedback that I've gotten, and then I will feed it back to you. And then perhaps you will Digest that. I I am kind of describing a human centipede of the pod, but please don't think of it like that. But first, the Chilean constitution went down in flames. Might have been a large bonfire. It was a 170-page, 388-article document. It was very ambitious. It would give rights to indigenous groups. It would strengthen regulations on minings. It would give rights to animals, to nature. It enshrined rights about neurodiversity. And it was too much for about two-thirds of the people. But why? Chile is a fascinating country. Did the leftist or left-leaning president just go too far? Or does no one want to sift through 170 pages? Is no one better to join me and talk about this than Ted Picone. He's a senior fellow at the Strobe Talbot Center for Security Strategy and Technology at Brookings. He's the chief engagement officer of the World Justice Project. He served in many roles in the Clinton administration, and he knows a lot about Chile and constitutions. Ted Picone up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, this hemisphere has a couple of the most stable democracies in the world. Canada, of course, but 
Uruguay and South America. I do have to say Aruba and Dominica are high up on that list. However, when we look to South America, I think the impression that we often get is that of instability. And in recent years, countries like Brazil and Bolivia have certainly tested the limits of constitutional democracies or democracy at all. Then there's Chile, which has been experiencing tumult and certainly has a dictatorial past, but they've also been trying very hard to right the wrongs of their country through the constitution. Though it's been tough and it hasn't always worked and it was recently rejected, but let's talk about it all with Theodore Ted Picone, who's a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution and a senior advisor to the World Justice Project, served in the Clinton administration. I should also say, among his books, Five Rising Democracies and the Fate of the International Liberal Order, and one of those democracies was Chile. Ted, welcome to The Gist. Thank you, Mike. Nice to see you. So when you wrote that book about six years ago, where was Chile then? And maybe you could take us to where the path that they've wended until today. Sure. Well, just to clarify something in that book, um, Brazil was my interesting test case for South America, although Chile is a really important story to tell because of its of its history. And I think we should look at that for a moment. The, um, you know, let's talk about 1973, um, you had Salvador Allende, a leftist president in power, democratically elected, but increasingly taking the country in a direction that caused a lot of controversy. And this was during the Cold War. So it also drew a lot of attention internationally, including here in, in Washington. And as a result of that tumult, um, the military took over. And you had uh, a coup, a classic military coup in which General Augusto Pinochet uh, claimed power. And that was really an aberration of Chile's longstanding tradition of democratic politics. And so I would not put Chile in the box of um, instability like other uh, Latin American countries. Chile was an exception um, for, for decades, actually. It's a somewhat more centrist, stable country. And so I guess you could argue, if you look at the history, then the instability was at least funded, if not prompted by the U.S., which was behind the coup and Operation Condor, right? Very much so. I mean, there is no question that um, Nixon Kissinger played a really um, important and negative role in that. Now, that said, um, the Chilean public and the elites were pretty unified uh, of concern against Allende and the way he was taking the country. That's not to justify the coup, but um, there was, you know, political support for it initially. However, the military decided to consolidate its role and stay in power for um, almost two decades. And in doing that, they had to find a way to legalize the process, right? So they created a constitution in 1980, and it was called a managed democracy in which um, it was written in a way that really empowered uh, conservative factions in, in the political life. And it gave the military a special role as a guarantor of the political order. Um, it did another very important thing, which was to impose a neoliberal capitalist model on the country at the constitutional level, um, even going so far as allowing the private sector to uh, be in the lead for services like water and electricity and transportation. And what you saw was um, 
many years of strong economic growth in, in Chile under that privatization model, but also rising inequality and intense levels of poverty, as well as human rights abuses and repression of the political left. And was it was it a milit was it a flat out military dictatorship or was the military always there like in some countries like Turkey? Um, if things go south, okay, I'm not going to use that pun. If things go pear shaped, the military is there, like you said, a guarantor. We're going to set it straight. Well, for most of that period, Pinochet was the head of state wearing a military uniform, and the high command was by his side. And yes, there were civilians in the cabinet who um, shared power. Um, he couldn't run it 100% as a military dictatorship, but it was at the end of the day, very much a military dictatorship. For example, the military under the constitution had rights to a certain percentage of the copper export revenue, the copper revenue that came from, from Chile um, to make sure that there was never any um, budget cuts to, to, the, <laughs> to the military's prerogatives. Right. And nationalizing copper, am I, am I right? Nationalizing copper was the threat uh, under Allende that really frightened Nixon and Kissinger. Um, I think it was more than that. I think they saw it as part of the competition against the Soviet Union and this concern that um, you know, Chile would go the way of others and be the beginning of this domino theory um, in, in Latin America. So 1980, um, that constitution was approved in this questionable plebiscite, but a key ingredient of that constitution allowed for another plebiscite eight years later in 1988 on whether Pinochet should stay in power for another eight years. And that's the summer of 1988 that I was in Santiago as a law student working at one of the leading human rights organizations and really trying to understand this constitution and the way it was written to repress any um, free expression that suggested um, leftist thought. So any attacks against the family or again, or promoting class struggle or Marxism was banned under the constitution. So, what you saw in the summer of 1988 was this tumult in the streets in support uh, against Pinochet, that this plebiscite, this was our chance to take him down. And, you know, there were water cannons in the street breaking up the protests, and there were workshops in little neighborhoods about learning how to vote because they made it as complicated as possible in terms of how you folded the ballot and all of this. And in the end, um, Pinochet lost significantly by, you know, 56% vote. And that initiated this return to democracy. Yeah, because military dictatorship, but one where the leader, I don't know, uh, graciously accepted, but was forced to accept the results of this plebiscite that said, stop being our leader. That's right. And he did maintain certain prerogatives under this um, arrangement, as it was all very carefully orchestrated that as he stepped back into the shadows, the politicians who stepped forward were very careful about you know, not doing anything too radical and very incremental change. Um, but over time, a series of elections, amendments to the Constitution, and more open political space for the center-left and the center-right to alternate in power for 20 years. And this was a successful model for Chile. They kept more or less with the social, uh, 
neoliberal model, um, but they made changes along the way. But it was, it was still the dominant discourse of the Pinochet system uh, for from even as Chile returned to democracy. But as I looked, as I was observing Chile from up here in North America, it seemed like, I don't know if it was a raging success story, but doing quite well. You looked at the, well, lack of coups, and though they'd have currency fluctuations, maybe it wasn't as bad as Argentina, and there was some truth in reconciliation. It just seemed to me to be a growing middle class, a lesson in moderation, the effects of moderation, uh, in terms of delivering some goods for the public. Is that about right for, I don't know, 20 years? Absolutely. That is the right picture. And on th- visits I made to the country, you could see tangibly the difference in the quality of life for the middle class. I mean, things were improving significantly. Another, th- you know, the in- the pollution in Santiago during the military dictatorship was notorious. And that started getting cleaned up. Um, So a a number of improvements, but basically that model ran its course. There was a growing movement on the left uh, for deeper change, for, you know, the people who were left behind in this democratic period um, who were left behind economically. Yeah. But did this coincide with uh, the trends worldwide where Uh, the neoliberal order wasn't delivering benefits, material goods to the extent it had been for its populace. Was this, you know, was this just, look, after 20 years, um, we've still had this inequality. And so now is the time not to be complacent or was it more, we can no longer say that if we just stick to this moderate course, uh, situations or living standards will keep improving. I think it was, it was, very much part of a set of ideas and thinking that um, we this model is exhausted. It is not able to improve the quality of life for millions of people who are stuck behind in poverty and yes, very high rates of inequality in in Chile, and the rich still you know maintained uh, power and and resources uh, that had to be shared. So so that really created the seeds. And a lot of this came out of the student movement at the university level and even at the high school level in um, the 2010s. And there were various protests around issues of, you know, making education free for everyone in the country. And um, there were different periods of student protests, but it really came to a head in 2019, in October, when um, a rise in transportation uh, fees uh, in Santiago caused this uproar of protests, um, led by students, but many other factions came to the table. And over a million people came to the streets in Santiago alone um, to, to, to protest this rising inequality and problems with quality of life. And that's when, um, as part of a way out of that crisis, uh, the political parties agreed, okay, it's time to write a new constitution. And they put the question to the voters and they said, should we write a new constitution? How should we do it? And the voters overwhelmingly said yes. 
78%. And they wanted it as a direct election of the delegates, not through the political system, they, not through the Congress. And they so they pulled that together. They had elections for the delegates to the Constitutional Convention, and they got to work um, in July of 2021. What I'm learning through this conversation is that Chile loves referenda and plebiscites. Yes, <laughs> which is, you know, which is a very democratic process. Now, uh-huh. you could quibble about turnout. You know, turnout varied. It went as low as 45, 47 percent for some of these steps. Uh, but nonetheless, it allowed more people to be involved in this process. Interestingly, the left was more organized in getting their people into the Constitutional Convention. And many of them came under the guise of independence. Um, that was actually the largest faction in the Constitutional Convention. But many of them were associated with, with the left. Um, and so even though the right had the highest um, proportion of seats in the convention, they did not have veto power. And so uh, in the end, what do you get? You get a constitution that has 366 articles that really is one of the most progressive documents I've, I've ever read. Well, yes, progressive is one way to put it. Utopian is what some other uh, political scientists in the region say. This original proposed constitution included rights like neurodiversity and a right of digital connection. And at least from my reading, rights or phrases that the average Chilean wouldn't even understand what they meant necessarily. I can't put myself in the shoes of a Chilean voter, but it is really striking the the language that's used in the document. It it reads like a a treatise out of you know some o- leading Oberlin sociology writes. department. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's quite out there, and um, not surprisingly raised a lot of questions for people. It's like, what is this? You know, what does this mean? And it was not well-defined in in the text itself. So it sowed a lot of doubts, I think, in in people's minds. So are we to take away that the proposed constitution just wasn't as left progressive utopian as the populace, or was it more of tactical mistakes, maybe tactical mistakes born of a process where everyone gets to put in their little claws. But practically, if you have 388 articles, there's something for everyone to object to. There is something for every opponent to exaggerate or demagogue, or there's just the likelihood that a couple of them will have real flaws. So to go back to my original question, the Constitution didn't meet the people where they were or the technical uh, framing of the Constitution was unwise. I, I think that at the heart of it, it met most people's demands for a new model of governance and economic uh, system in, in Chile. People do want to see the state play a bigger role in leveling the playing field. Things like you know providing national health care or providing f- you know, if not free education, at least reduced education that, you know, this run up of private for-profit education um, is costing too much and people need to um, 
you know, survive and get ahead by, um, you know, getting a foot up in, in the system. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot of support for those features. And it's a question of cleaning up a lot of the extraneous material in this constitution and doing it over again. And, and coming out of this loss, um, Boric and his allies have reached a, a, an agreement with um, other parties to convoke another constitutional convention um, in and not make it a drawn out process of one year. Do it in six months and do it in a more confined um, arrangement with the political parties and politicians and experts around the table to avoid some of the doubts, you know, the legitimate doubts. The language in the Constitution is very vague in many places and it really kind of is a head scratcher and that's got to be uh, cleaned up in order for them to go forward. Ted Picone is a non-resident fellow at Brookings. He was a senior foreign policy advisor at the Departments of State, the National Security Council, the Pentagon, and he's the chief engagement officer at the World Justice Project. Ted, thanks so much. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel, specifically an Antwin Tigar name for a three-week period from the old, deriving, I mean, I just didn't invent it or anything, deriving from the old English for 21, Antwin Tig. Antwin Tig. As an admirer, I was praying for you to stop talking when talking about Schemo. So begins Whitney Thurlow's letter. I knew that many... Letter. You know, this is not 1917. It was an email. But I knew that many people would take issue with my analysis of the death, the horrible, tragic death of Hillary Nelson, who died on a mountain that she was skiing down after mountaineering up, ski mountaineering. And I know that there are people in the audience who engage in this and would certainly find fault in what they saw as my conflation of a very dangerous and extreme, though not wrong, in the case of Nelson, activity, where you do things that only a few people in the world even tried to do, and schema, which is an Olympic event now. But many of the defenders of schema went so far as to say, as Whitney Thurlow does, Hillary was not doing schema and what will happen in the Olympics. I would write more, but at the moment, I am guiding a group of ski mountaineers, all men in the 60s, who are quite chuffed that you think they are so extreme. I don't. I think chuffed might mean a little peeved, but wouldn't 60-year-olds want, want that? Status Matt Wolski, another schemothusiast, writes, Hello, Mike. I enjoy your podcast. I have been an active schemo person for 20-plus years, living in the Intermountain West. Uh, more people die driving to the trailhead than in participant accidents. You need to reevaluate on this one. Lots of hyperbole. We're risk managers and do our best to come home to our family while getting good exercise and enjoying the mountains. I've had three close friends die in accidents. One was active military. So is that rebutting my points or more confirming them? He said the Taliban didn't get him, but a random rock did. Life is dangerous, but that doesn't stop us from going out. So see how he started 
not to tear my friend Matt Walensky apart, and I'm going to give his business a plug in a second, but he started off from a point of it's pretty safe and life's dangerous and you got to accept danger and three people died. My point was never, this thing is so dangerous, what Hillary Nelson is doing is inherently dangerous, probably going to kill you. I did go to the webpage of the ski mountaineering over 8,000 meter club, and I did document that a third of them with bios, in other words, the most prominent ones, died on mountains, and that is true. My point wasn't don't do it. I never said don't do it. My point is that when an event becomes an Olympic event, it becomes more popular to the masses. And this is a dangerous activity. I read you the stats in that spiel. 4.4 deaths per million exposures and compared to every other outdoor skiing activity, more than four times the fatality rate. And just like and other people who wrote in said, you know, comparing the regular schemo person to what Hillary was doing is like comparing, you know, a weekend rock climber with the guy who scaled El Capitan. Well, it's a good analogy, actually. And the more that rock climbing is in the Olympics and the more that... uh, Movies like Free Solo come out, which are fine and which are good, but they certainly glorify dangerous activity and make it mainstream, the more fatalities we're going to have. And I was comparing it to other athletic endeavors that don't have nearly the amount of danger, but we kind of act as if they do. Another portion of this critique was that I'm just getting schemo wrong. The word schemo does not mean ski mountaineering. On the Reddit page, Ruuncian, I don't know, there's a lot of vowels in the user's name, say, I know there's a small overlap between just listeners and schema with Jason athletes. Yes, but we heard from all of them. But I really feel like Mike got in past his understanding here. Excellent restraint, not to say that I got in over my skis. He conflated expeditionary ski mountaineering with competitive schema racing and recreational touring. And I got a lot of this critique. I just read you Whitney Thurlow. Ski mountaineering is not schemo. Only Schemo says it is. VR Winter Park was the venue for the newest event in the Winter Olympic program, Ski Mountaineering. Schemo, as it's known, combines skiing and mountaineering in a race up and down the alpine slopes. But again, my main point is the acceptance of risk, the conception of risk. Engage in a risky activity, I totally understand. But to look askance or even a sconce, but a scance at other popular sporting activities, like, say, football, as dangerous and schemo as not, is a miscalculation, I do believe. Oh, and what am I going to do for Walensky? I'll plug his site. It's called Base Camper Van, because he sells camper vans that are good for base camps. I like it. It's a portmanteau word. And it reminds me of that band Camper Van Beethoven, which I didn't realize was a funny pun for many, many years after listening to many of their songs, mostly Take the Skinheads Bowling. But we could actually Portman 2 Man 2, the bass camper van with the camper van Beethoven, and you get bass camper van Beethoven. How cool is that? In fact, you go a little ahead of the bass and say... Uh, second base camper Van Beethoven, or split second base Van Camper Be- Van Beethoven, or banana split second base camper Van Beethoven's third in E major league of legends of the fall out boy George Harrison Ford Fiesta. You could do that, but that would be silly. We got an email, actually it might have been a tweet from Sean Sullivan, called me out 
Russia is not the home of the Molotov cocktail. Finland is. Finland invented it to repel the Russians. So many Molotov cocktails maybe found their home in the clothings or on the person of a Russian, but this would be like attributing the Gatling gun to the Spanish when in fact they were of course slaughtered by Gatling guns in the Battle of San Juan. Or, you know, draft protesters slaughtered by the Gatling gun. We would not want to offend the Gatling gun in that way. And I do also want to thank you, all of my listeners, for responding. Not all of them, about 30 people responded. But what, what an outpouring when I said I was a little bothered by the most prominent review at the time in the reviews on Apple Podcasts. This wasn't a call to rate and review the show. It helps other people find it. I see no evidence that it does. I can't say it doesn't, but there's no solid evidence. There was evidence that I was getting bummed out by being criticized for my insensitivity towards the blind community. So I said, give me a bad review. Give me an honest review. I don't care. Just please push somewhere down this list the fact that I am anti-blind. And what nice reviews came in. Mostly five stars, witty and reason, great podcast, great show. Here was a nice one by Chris, five dollar sign, eight, two, question mark, five, which happens to be my pin. Mike has a great insight and the show has a good combination of silly and serious. I also happen to know that Mike supports the blind community. Nice of you to say, but I much preferred the Good Except One Thing review by Buck Boats. Great podcast, but I'm not sure why Mike Pesca hates blind people so much. It's confusing. That really did make me laugh. But it is not on the Apple Podcast app or their review page, which you've been told helps people find their shows. It does not, or we see no evidence that it does. That's not where I have the biggest back and forth with you, the community. It's on Reddit. Right now, we're a little under a thousand Reddit tours. You might not be on Reddit, but I really do get a lot out of the interaction on Reddit. And I participate sometimes. I have a Bruce Springsteen inflected handle. I usually identify myself. You'll know where I am. But I just love the fact that listeners engage with each other as I would like most listeners to. Which brings me to the Lopstar of the Anton Twen Tig, our name for the best listener or interactor, or in this case, Reddit tour. And I'm not giving it to a person. Here, I'll read you a little tet-a-tet, red-a-ret. The irony of this subreddit, says the seer, is that, and how intimidating, right, to go up against the seer, is that Mike tries pretty hard to take a moderate and thoughtful position on things, but lots of people here want him to be more closely aligned with their partisan perspective. The fact that people complain that he is either too liberal or too conservative is hilarious, and neither side seems to realize that the other side exists. Now, this was in a conversation with uh, Ted Kay. I hope not redditing from the Supermax in Colorado. But Ted, who is disagreeing with the seer, said, I'm significantly to Pesca's left personally, but I'd agree. I don't follow the show because he comes to the same conclusions I do on everything. I listen because he's conversed in a lot of different spheres. I don't want this to just be about complimenting me. And also his once in a generation singing talent to which the seer says his singing is legitimately terrible. It is and hilarious. Thank you for saying so. I'm with you. I don't always agree with him either, but I think I always understand how he arrives at his point. I appreciate his desire to make good arguments and engage in thoughtful discussions. That sort of thinking is in short supply these days. It is, but I would suggest maybe that's in short supply from all time. In the Socratic dialogue, Plato wrote it, Phaedo, Socrates on the brink of death has a conversation with the great philosopher Socrates. And Socrates talks about the 
societal trend of misology, not mythology, misology. And misology means a hatred of argument. Socrates says, there is a certain experience we must be careful to avoid. We must not become misologues as people become misanthropes. There is no greater evil one can suffer than to hate reasonable discourse. Misology and misanthropy arise in the same way. I, this show, I think this conversation stands for the proposition that misology is a terrible curse, a blight upon the land. I think maybe when I was a little bit younger, this wasn't quite so galloping a negative trend, but now there is, I think, a lot more misology around us. Like, no, I don't want to debate you, bro. I am so exhausted at having to make these arguments. Why should I have to educate you? That's okay. I think it's a little bit of the strains of misology. And therefore, you and I and the lobsters of the Antan Twig, who are the seer and Ted K, stand athwart that trend and try to argue or at least reason our way out of it. Didn't work so well for Socrates. Here's more hope for us. That's it for today's show. The gist is assistant produced, weird verb, by Corey Wara. Senior produced by Joel Patterson. COO'd, COO'd, the COO tracks down those who owe the C and many other jobs. That is done by Michelle Pesca. The gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperu, G-peru, du And thanks for listening. <laughs>